Hoody hoo. Hey guys, welcome to episode 56. Um, yeah, this is a really good topic. Um, I found this woman and she was kind of on the fence. She wasn't sure about how she fit into this podcast, but she fit in very nicely. She does have a, a, a disability, but it's not like it's really not the focus of the podcast at all. We, we kind of talk about it and gloss over it a little bit, but overall, she that wasn't the message. That's not what we were really getting getting into. Um, you know, so we we're you know talking about domestic violence, and it's something I didn't even think of as a topic. Um, obviously, because I, I don't really know anyone at, at the moment to interview, um, but she, you know, was very gracious and, and, and told her story, and so awesome person. Uh, please support her story. And um, as she said, if anyone out there knows anyone, you know, let them hear this interview. And also, um, you know, just reach out. If, if you want to get a hold of her, I'll have her information in the description. And uh, yeah, guys, you know, please stay safe. And um, if, if you're going through something similar to what she's going through or worse, please get help. Um, don't do this alone and, and please um, keep fighting and, and don't give up. Um, so that's kind of my overall theme of this podcast and the message is don't give up and keep fighting and um, hang in there. So again, for the rest of you guys, uh, thank you for, well, for all of you. Please th- just know I'm, I'm very grateful for your support. Uh, I thank you all the time because I want you to know I'm never, I'm never too big to thank all of you. Um, And, uh, yeah, you guys are amazing. So, again, see you guys on the next one. And, um, yeah, take care, guys. Be safe. All right, guys, so we were back with another one. Um, So every here and there I delve into topics that I don't know a whole lot about other than a little basic research or um, maybe, you know, a friend of mine or somebody goes through it. Um, And so... First, I guess I'll introduce my guest. Um, so you want to tell us your name and then obviously what you advocate for? All right. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Sonia Frontera, and uh, I am an attorney. I practice immigration and family law, and I am also an empowerment trainer and a domestic violence advocate. And, and uh, I also authored two books, Relationship Solutions and Solve the Divorce Dilemma. So in a nutshell, that's me. I uh, I have practiced law for 26 years now, and I'm now on a different phase of my life. Um, after having a migraine disability, I had to end my career as a litigator. So now I am enjoying my life as uh, an attorney and uh, private practice. I have my own law office and writing books and putting out materials and content that helps people create better lives out of their adversity. Right. So you're a very busy and driven woman. Um, Indeed. So um, I don't know. Where should we start as far as... So our topic for the most part is, is going to be domestic violence. So um, I guess... St- I mean, was was there any of that in your life before it happened to you as far as whether it's in your household with your mom and dad or friends or... Um, was there any experience with it, whether it was you or someone you knew? Before you uh, experienced it? Actually, I I can't say I had that experience up close and personal. In fact, I grew up in a very vanilla household. Um, But domestic violence is something that happens to one in every four women and one in every seven men. 
and there are people I knew and that I was close to that I know their their partners were abusive. Um, but it was never in my family. It was never something that I witnessed. So I was a little bit um, unfamiliar with it at the time it happened to me. Right. Um, so of the time of this relationship, how old were you? I was 24 years old when I got married the first time. Okay. Um, so with saying that, um, how long, like, how did the relationship, like when it started, was everything fair and okay? Or was it right off the bat? No, it was, it was wonderful. I, we had a really great relationship. We were really compatible. We were having a lot of fun and I married the love of my life. But within 24 hours of the wedding, I came to realize that I had made a big mistake and I, I had married a psychologically abusive man. He started um, verbally abusing me in on the plane on our way to the honeymoon, and it was it came to me as a big shock. I did not see that coming. And for listeners out there who might think, you know, that sounds so odd, it does sound very odd. But when you learn more about this type of relationships you come to realize that that is not unusual. It's actually quite common because once the abuser feels that they have certain control over you, that you're not going to, they, they you know, you're not as likely to be able to get away from them, that's when they start ramping up their abusive behaviors. So, so it's not unusual for someone to experience that right after a marriage. Right, so in essence, you signed the contract, he owns you now, and he can kind of drop his guard and now be what he actually really is. Right. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, you know, not to go into complete detail, but what, what were some of the things he was saying to you? Well, he started out by saying that from now on, everything is going to change. And he started saying very vicious things about me and my family, very insulting and hurtful words. And um, I had no idea what to do. Um, I mean, that was really out of context, something that we had never really done when we had, you know, like all couples have arguments, but I've never experienced anything like this. It was, it was intentionally vicious and hurtful and abusive. Right. How many years into the relationship was this when you got married? Three years. Three years. Okay. So you already, and how long were you with them in total? 10 years. Ten, okay, because yeah, I remember you telling me off mic that it was seven years of abuse. Um, so, what was your initial reaction to his tirade? I I just couldn't believe it. It just just seemed like you know when you're in a move when when you're watching a, like a horror movie and and you just witness it witness it or when you see something happening in slow motion when you're getting into an accident it was just that surreal feeling. And I was on an airplane. I'll, I just broke down in tears because what else could I do? Right. Now, was he being very loud about it or was it just kind of abusive, but in a way of between the two of you? It was not a scene that's, you know, it was not a loud and obnoxious abusive scene that, right. you know, everybody noticed on the plane. Right. Right. It uh, was kind of almost like a conversation. Wow. Yeah. That's even, it's almost creepy. It was just the content of that conversation that was incredibly abusive and hurtful. That's almost more surreal too. Cause it's, it's like he's having a basic conversation, but at you, um, cause almost if they're being loud and you know, that, that you could probably diffuse that more because obviously being on a plane, 
you can't really be loud and aggressive. So, but the fact that he's just having this like nonchalant conversation of how you're terrible, um, you know, it's almost in a way kind of worse. Yeah, I think the body language was the most telling part of it. The expression in his face was so evil and, and vicious. You know, there was no mistaking it. Right. So then how did you, um, I mean, obviously you went back home and you're, you know, I'm assuming you were living with each other. So how did you just kind of brush that off and go on with the next day? You know, it was really, it, it was difficult. It was. But I'm a survivor. It's like, what are you going to do? It's not like I could just turn around and go to mommy kind of thing. So it's like I was in Mexico. I tried to make the best of it. Beautiful weather. My fajitas, my margaritas. And and I knew that this was something very abnormal and I had to do something about it. I just didn't know at the time what what to do, how I was going to resolve this this problem. And that's something that, you know, it took me, it took me years to sort through. Right. And I, I know, because my, my sisters have Puerto Rican, and I know the Spanish culture, you know, a lot of it is about, you know, loyalty and, and staying with the person you're married to. And I'm, did you have that problem where the parents, you know, did, did you share any of this with anyone else as far as the initial Well, I abuse? couldn't. And I know, and if you're familiar with Puerto Rican mothers, and um, my cousins and I had had this conversation just 30 years after my wedding, um, cousins who've gone through divorce, it's like the parents are like, well, couldn't you just figure that out before the wedding? Right, you know? right, right. And I knew, I knew where my mother was going to go with it. And I knew I wouldn't get any support or, or, or belief, you know, that, that, of the gravity of the situation. And it's kind of, it's really hard to understand. And this is something that I encourage listeners who have friends or relatives who like become withdrawn and, and change their personalities after entering in a relationship or getting married because it's, it's really imperceptible in, in many situations because abusive partners tend to display very charming behaviors and they they save all the bad stuff just for the partner in the privacy of their home or or where they won't be seen. So the the persona that people saw of my husband was very different from what I had. So it's not like I could really enlist any support. So I found myself very alone and very unsupported through this whole throughout this whole ordeal. So essentially you felt alone even though you're married. Yeah, it was a very lonely time, and most people didn't even know about it. Only one person noticed and said, you know, what's wrong with you? You just don't smile anymore, and it was a co-worker I wasn't even friendly with. Most yeah. people just didn't pick it up. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe you have to, you have to be really aware of, you know, vibes and people and picking up on things. It just kind of, unless, unless you literally wear a shirt saying your problem or, you're vocal about it. And a lot of people just kind of think you're just going through some emotions and especially being a woman, you know, some people might just brush it off as, Oh, she's on her period or she's going through whatever emotion or this or that. So people brush things off pretty easily, even though they're probably battling something similar. Yeah, you're right. You're spot on. Um, so <clears throat> how, how did it progress? Like, I mean, obviously you said this went on for another seven years, um, so did, did he treat you like a, a possession? 
Well, you see the way things work, and every every relationship is different. But in my case, he tried to become very controlling, and, and that's very common in, in abusive relationships. And the power tool of the abuser is to try to isolate you from from your friends and family and all your support systems. Right. So he tried to separate me from my family by making it very difficult for me. Every time I, I, I hung up the phone, he would be listening in and then he would be commenting on the conversation. So what, what instructions did your mother give you? Um, and, and commentary that was un, uncalled for, totally gratuitous. And uh, the put downs and the criticism, it, it was, it was constant. It was continuous. And I, I never accepted it as such. I never, you know, accepted what he was saying to me or about me as true. And I simply refused to give up on my support system. So it is very exhausting to be, to be dealing with, with a partner who is doing and saying things that are hurtful intentionally so. But on the other hand, another aspect of, of these relationships is that you have a partner who may do something bad and then he will be contrite and would be very nice. And you kind of try to hang on to to the partner you married that was right. fun and good to you. Right. Some, and tr- some of the, you know, you're wishing for that. Right. Certain things kind of seep through, like maybe he's cooking a dinner and he just says, hi, baby. And he smiles at you. And like, that's kind of what won you over at some point or whatever. And you go, oh, see, that's him. And then maybe a day later, he says something horrible about you. And it, but you still are holding on to that smile and or whatever, whatever. Yes, you want the good. You want to hang on to the good. You, if only, if he only behaved this way all the time. Why can't he be like this all the time? And and then you wish you wish the person had that transformation and stopped engaging in those hurtful behaviors that are so destructive. And for me, the way out, I decided I wanted to go to school. I went to law school. I felt like I was a dead end in my life at the age of 25. I was in a, in a job from hell, and I was in a marriage from hell. And I decided I want to start something new and empower myself. And I decided to go to school. And uh, that kind of put some distance between me and my husband physically because I was in school. I had a full-time job. I was going to school at night. So I was pretty much gone from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. So that that took, you know, time away from from the obnoxious behaviors that were so common in, in our relationship. Now, why why do you think he never physically did anything to you? He did it once. Okay. He did it once. And um, I insisted that we have to go to counseling. This is not acceptable, and I will never allow this to happen again. So we went to counseling. Counseling didn't work, but at least he realized that there was somebody, there was a counselor who stood up to him and said, you do this again, and she's going to go to the police. And, you know, when they see the size difference, guess who they think they're going to believe? Right, right, right. And, you know, I had a large husband, and I'm a very petite woman, and, um, you know, very um, polite. So I think that scared him. Right. Yeah. Well, so that never repeated itself. Right. 
I mean, you hear the worst case scenarios. I mean, there was a movie, a documentary, one of those like docu movies or whatever, where it's about a, a guy who um, locked up his what was it, his sister or some. I forget the actual thing, but he locked up a girl in his basement for twenty years and and knocked her up, and they had I believe like eight kids, but he kept her down there, and he was he had a wife the whole time, and you know so like there's there's like some extremes where you know, they don't allow you to leave the house and they treat you like that. So in some way, there was some sort of sanity that he didn't, I mean, he still allowed you to go to work. He still allowed you to do things. And again, maybe allow is not the proper term, but, you know, again, being a much bigger guy, if he wanted to physically say no, he could say no to you. So in some way, he still let you have a life, but then he verbally abused you to the point where you weren't motive and, uh, motivated. Um, but like, did he ever... You know, like, did he, you know, you're you're a very attractive woman, so did he make you feel like you were ugly and you weren't worth anyone else's time? Oh, boy, you hit it, and then, you know, you hit it head on. Yes, that was one of the behaviors that, uh, that he engaged in, and many abusers do. Um, he would tell me I'm unattractive. Every time I got a haircut, he had to make fun of the way I looked, my clothes, what I was wearing, how, how unattractive it was. Um, how uh, I was, he accused me of having relationships with other men and, um, you know, asked questions, what were you doing with so-and-so? Like if I had lunch with, let's say, a coworker or a friend from college, someone I hadn't known before him, he would start making these uh, accusations or innuendo just to try to discourage me from, from pursuing relationships with other human beings to cut me off from my, my support system. And then, of course, putting me down, calling me names, um, saying things like, you're less, you're worth less than the dirt under my fingernail. And, and saying things like that. And even though I knew better that I'm not let, worth less than the dirt under his fingernail, it is just really exhausting to have to, you know, deal with this kind of behavior. Right. And and somebody who's supposed to love you is telling you that you're ugly, even if you know that maybe you're not. And again, we're all insecure in some ways, but and certain things could feed either your ego or, you know, can beat you down. So if someone if 10 people call you ugly, but one calls you beautiful, you know, and again, it's also depending on the person, too. So like if the person is your husband, the person who married you and says you're beautiful and then all of a sudden now says you're ugly, like you're probably more inclined to believe it. Um, even if it's not true. Um, and it also probably, I'm sure, trickles down because even if you are beautiful, because then I'm sure somebody could say, well, then did you ever get any attention from any other guys? But it's like if your attitude is droopy and you're you're giving off maybe an unattractive vibe, even if you are attractive, where it's just like you're sad and you're, you know, you're not really yourself. You don't have this bubbly personality that you probably would normally have if you were happy, but you feel ugly inside. So you're kind of projecting ugliness on the outside, even if you're Physically not ugly, if that makes sense. Yeah, that too. And bear in mind that many people who end up in, in abusive relationships have problems with self-esteem to begin with, especially if you grew up in a household where you were given negative messages about yourself. You're no good. You'll never amount to anything. You will never be loved. If you have been exposed to that kind of message, throughout and you believe them, you have internalized them, it, it can be so incredibly devastating. For me, I had a, you know, I, I was a professional woman. I had a good job. I made good money. 
Um, so I had ways to validate myself, but very often abusers prey on people who do not have that, that, that inner strength or, or that sense of self. And that's when it's a lot harder to get out because it's, it's hard for anyone to get out of these relationships. But when you, when you find yourself with no support systems and, and little self uh, worth, it is, it is virtually impossible. And you really, really need more help to be able to liberate yourself because we are all loving and lovable and we all deserve to be respected and loved and appreciated. And it's not just one partner, somebody else will, starting with yourself. Right, right. It's kind of the, yeah, the beginning of everything. If you don't love yourself, you're not going to, no one's really, most likely and someone's not going to love you, or at least not love you for the things you want them to. Um, yeah. But before we like progress to obviously leaving him and, and, and developing your career, what was your, I mean, during these seven years, what, how did your mental health progress as far as your outlook on you and just living and, and, and just things like that? Well, I worked with a counselor all along. I, I, was, I found myself alone in terms of family and friends knowing what was going on and supporting me on my way out or having any kind of, of support from, from family. So I worked with, with counselors throughout this ordeal. And uh, I maintained my sanity, and I found one of my counselors extremely empowering. And I got to a point where his his behavior had a lot less impact on me, and that's why I think it's really important to empower yourself first before you try to exit the relationship, unless, of course, if you find yourself in a dangerous situation, you need to get help quickly to, to end the relationship and, and be safe. But in my case, I just continued to empower myself. The fact that I had the support of a counselor and I was in school and I had a new, a new set of friends and activities and I had a very busy life and a very stimulating um, academic program. So all that helped me become stronger. So I paid less attention to what he was doing. And when um, I was getting to my last semester, semester of law school, even though it's very difficult to go through a divorce while you're in school, I said, I don't want to practice law with somebody else's last name. The time to go is now. So I filed for divorce my last semester in law school and then started a brand new life from scratch. Right. Um, How how long was this plan that you were building? um, You, I guess your essential, your escape route or escape route and also uh, oh, the other question just slipped from me. Um, anyway, but yeah, how, how long was it where you actually, oh yeah, how long was it that you were planning this escape route, but also how, um, how did you, did you keep a lot of this part of your life away? I mean, he obviously kind of knew you were doing something, but you obviously were happy in another part of your life, but he's still, you know, around, he's still, you live with him. So how did you separate that and keep that from him? Well, I, I, he realized I'm, I'm, I was a very academic type person at the time. And I, I'm kind of like a, I'm, I'm kind of a force. It's hard to imagine someone like me putting myself in this kind of situation, but I'm very strong. And when I, when I say something, that's it. When I make up my mind, that's it. So there was no stopping me from growing to school. 
And my family was really supportive of me going to school because my dad wanted me to be a lawyer to begin with, and I didn't when I was when I was in high school. So my I had a lot of support in terms of changing my life and starting this this new profession. So I think um, he knew better. I think I think he knew there was no way he could have stopped me from going to school. Or perhaps he thought I would I would give up because it's a very difficult thing to do to go to school while you're married and you're you're working full time. Right. So how how long was this like escape plan that you had or whatever you want to call it? Like how long were you like working? I mean, obviously going to school takes a while and so on. But um, how long was it this, the build up of like okay, whenever this happens, I'm I'm out of here. I actually didn't plan it that way. I figured law school would be a good move for me, and it strengthened me. I, I can't say I did it by design. It just worked out that way. I'm an intuiter, so I do things that end up working out in the end. But I I, I started going to school, and um, I before I did that, he, he wanted to work things out. I made it very clear, this is not working out. We can't continue like this. And he said, okay, let's try to work things out because I, I try to get out of the marriage within a few years of being married. And and it was not sustainable. We had a quiet year, but it was very clear that it would not last long term. So it was at that point that I, you know, I just kept on going through my school because I didn't want to rock the boat. Going through school is just so taxing, especially when you're working. And... Um, it just got to a point where where he just just did the last the last thing he um he berated me in public you know usually our 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 problems were at home but one time he started yelling at me in public and i said this is it this is the time this is this is my wake up call this is this is the sign that it's time to go right yeah i'm i'm sure that was probably a uh, final straw um what, uh, so uh, how long did you go to school for? Four years. Four years. The program is four years. Okay. Um, so did you instantly, like, did you know this is what you wanted to do? Like, for yeah. most of your life? Or, you know, when you actually knew what you wanted to do? No, actually, what I wanted to do when I was in high school was I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a journalist, and my family wasn't so crazy about that. So I um, I studied finance, and I did a corporate – I started working in corporate jobs. And uh, I uh, found myself not happy doing that, and uh, that's why I decided to go to law school because it was something I thought not only, you know, it, it, it would give me more opportunities – when, when you have a law degree, you can do different things, not necessarily practice law. So I, I found that, you know, pursuing a legal career would be, would open doors for me, would create a lot of possibilities. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, was there something to that that kind of triggered as far as with what you were going through? Like, is it something that, you know, you wanted to stick up for people that were, uh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but like, you know, were you, was it, was it something that was, you know, some sort of metaphorical whatever that was attached to what you were going through? Um, like you wanted to uplift other people. I don't know. Like what, why, why that profession over anything? I think the law is, is, it would be a good fit for me. And when I was in high school, they, they made us take this 
aptitude test based on they ask you all these unrelated questions and they, they ascertain what are your aptitudes, what are the kinds of things that you enjoy um, without asking you directly. And um, it turned out for me that it was either literary, persuasive, or mathematical. And uh, the law is both literary and persuasive. And so it was a good match for someone with my aptitude, with my interest. So I figured, you know what, this is, this is, this is probably something good to do. But I really always wanted to be a writer. That's, that's what I really always dreamed to be. Right. Now, um, so talk about, you know, the years, because how, how does that kind of evolve into you actually stopping for a while? Because you, you said you had a, a chronic illness. Um, and can you just like, explain a little bit about that? Uh, yes, I worked as an attorney. I've been practicing for 26 years now, and I worked 17 years for the state. I worked in government, and I was I was a litigator, and I had to go to court all the time. And and uh, all of a sudden, I started having difficulty concentrating and had some some pain, and I had no idea what was going on. I was not diagnosed for I would say for six months, and. Um, then I was diagnosed with chronic migraines, and I was very, very sick for a full year. I had like a 10-alarm headache, and I was not responding to medication. And it just became very clear, this is not for me. Um, I can't continue doing this. I need to find something else that will give me more flexibility and, and uh, live life on my own terms. And that's when somebody suggested I open my own law firm and I started doing the kind of work that didn't require me to go to court anymore that I could do when I was feeling well. And if I was not feeling well, I wouldn't have the pressure of the deadlines or having to be before a judge. And that's when um, I opened my law firm and being flexible, I figured I have, I have a wonderful window of opportunity here where I can choose what I do with my time. And I was inspired at the time after going to a forgiveness retreat for women and knowing how, how much women were suffering in, in their relationships and their marriages or suffering years after their marriages. That's when I got inspired to write a book to help people who find themselves in the same situation where I was many years before. Absolutely. How, how, just quickly, how, uh, how do you like mitigate the the headaches as far as like currently, like how do you, I mean, I'm sure you still have them, but how do you kind of lessen them, lessen them or like how often do you have them now? Well, now I would, I would have a tip typically about four migraines a month. There was a time when I had a migraine every single day and the only, the only treatment that worked because I was even hospitalized was Botox. So I received Botox shots uh, every quarter. And that has helped with the headaches. And I, I know what the triggers are, and I, I have a better control. It's really important to understand your body and, and know what kinds of things are likely to cause the headache and try to avoid them or nip the headache in the bud. So I'm getting better at that. Um, and typically I would say I would have three to four headaches, but I also have episodes where I would have a migraine daily for a month to three months or so. So it's very unpredictable. Right. Absolutely. Um, 
now did you had did you see and again I don't know how many what kind of court cases you were involved with but like did you see any people that were in the same situation as you? I had one domestic violence case when I, while I worked in government and um, my background was very helpful. My understanding of the issues and it helped me present it to the court because the courts don't always understand what's going on. That kind of training. So not very much, but uh, right. it, did, it did become very useful. Um, is, there, is there any like misconceptions on domestic violence that you know of that people just completely just get wrong? There's a lot of misconceptions surrounding domestic violence. People don't really understand what they're going, what the what the survivors are going through. Um, people don't realize that the behaviors that that the abuser might be exhibiting exhibiting in in company in front of others are different from the persona they're showing in their relationship. They tend to be very charming, so people don't realize. Um, what the victim is going through. And um, they don't think it could happen to certain people. Like, nobody would have suspected that someone like me would have been in an abusive relationship. Um, They don't have, they don't understand that it's something that could happen to anyone. And, and, And that's why it's so important to get some awareness to this important issue. This is something that happens to one in four women. And if you go in a room and there's more than four women, you know, at least one of them has been a survivor. And that uh, many people in the profession, like as, as I practice law, many of the women I meet through network events have been uh, involved in these kinds of relationships. So people don't really understand. It, it's just very, very bizarre. It's very counterintuitive when you realize that, that you know, on the surface, the relationship seems okay. And very often, um, in other situations, the abusers are very blatant about it, and, and the victims can't, um, don't realize, that the, the, their loved ones are trying to help them out, and, and they find themselves in, in a very difficult position trying to end. People don't realize that ending these relationships is very difficult because the abusers display different behaviors. There's something that's called a cycle of violence that I did not understand until I was in law school and I became an intern in the in the domestic violence unit of the court. There's something called a cycle of violence where the abuser starts with the with the behaviors, the behaviors escalate, there is a major incident. After that major incident they become contrite and uh, they seem repentful, and then there's a moment of, of a time of reconciliation, and then the cycle starts all over again. And that's something that if you have not been trained in domestic violence, you probably don't know about. It makes it very difficult for people to understand why someone would stay so long in this kind of situation. Right. I think that's the biggest conception. Well, I think another one is yes. that it doesn't happen to men, which it obviously does. Have you met any victims that are males? Oh, yeah. I, I, it, it's a little bit different in, in the way it happens. And domestic violence for men is more likely to happen when men get old. Uh, it's funny because when I, when I received my training for, for uh, the domestic violence unit, 
the head of the unit said, yes, it's payback time when, when the, the husband gets older and he has been abusive throughout the marriage. It's, it's time to pay back. And then they become the victims of abuse. That's one of the ways it happens. And uh, also it happens in other ways. I know of a couple where he was a mature man who married a younger woman and he thought he hit the jackpot and she was incredibly abusive to him. And, and they had young babies and and the man was trapped. She was very, very violent. She was abusive, throwing things at him. And then as men, you have the problem that it's kind of like an insult to their masculinity. Right, right. That men feel embarrassed that their wife is beating them up. What man wants to come forward and say that? Right, yeah. You know, it's it's very, very difficult for a man to, you know, to come forward when it comes to, to these types of situations as well. And also same-sex relationships, um, you would find, you know, men-on-men domestic abuse. Right, right, yeah. So it's something that doesn't discriminate. Abuse just, it, ha- it can happen to anyone in any kind of relationship. Right, you're just more likely if you're a woman, as far as percentage-wise. Right. Um, do, do you think there's any hope or any way to uh, fix, in, in a way, these abusers? I don't believe they can be fixed. I really don't. And uh, many domestic violence organizations, they they emphasize more having the survivor strengthen herself and end the relationship. There are anger management programs that are available, and sometimes courts make the abuser go through these programs. But it's like somebody who um, is an alcoholic and does not want to check themselves in at, at rehab. If you don't want it, if you don't see yourself as having an issue that needs correction, being in this in, in these programs is really not going to help. And I, I uh, it is my experience that abusers don't see themselves as doing anything wrong. And in fact, you hear it very often, she made me do it. If you had shut up, I wouldn't have had to hit you. Right, right. I I asked that because they had this, again, this is this television, but they had this, you know, the whole Maury show where they have guys and girls come on the show and the girl's crying and talking about how she's been abused and, you know, forced to have sex and all these things. And then they talk to the guy and, of course, the crowd boos him or whatever. But then they take him to these, like, drill sergeants and they show him dead bodies of, of that look like, you know, women that look like their their wives and they cry and they break down and... Um, and I know some of it's for television, and again, maybe some of them do feel that, but then I'm assuming they probably repent and do it again. Um, and again, I'm sure it's also on case by case. I'm sure there's some people that are more in the extreme, and some are more acting like their father or, or whoever did it to them. And I'm sure there probably is a very rare case of being able to help them, but um, yeah, I, I kind of figured what you said. Just They're probably more likely not to. You probably can't help them. Especially depending yeah. on the age, too. They're young, maybe. Yeah, I um, many domestic violence organizations uh, advise against doing joint counseling or, or reconciliation or training for the abuser because, in general, they don't change. Right, absolutely. Um, so what made you want to get married again? Oh, it took me a long time to get married again. How long, if you can recall, roughly? Oh, I can recall it 11 years. Wow. 
did you kind of with this time did you believe everything he said obviously you're happy and so on but like when you know maybe you had to fly somewhere else or whatever the scenario of when the marriage ended um did you kind of have your fingers crossed like oh god not this again or were you like full on in you figured this was what it was let me tell you something the experience with my ex-husband just created in me this the sixth sense i can smell an abuser from a mile away and I'm, I'm more sensitive to the signs. So I I knew better this time. I married somebody with a different personality. And right now, I, I have a better understanding, and I would leave. If anything like that happened, I would just leave immediately. I have been transformed by the experience. Right. Did it, did it take you a while to, f- like, feel attractive again and to get out there and even to want to have a man to even desire you again? Um, like psychologically. I, I, I was very popular. No, I, I, I was very, I was pretty young when I divorced. I was 31 and I was, I was young. I was, at the, I, I would say I was at the best time of my life and I, I didn't have any lack of interested in me, but having had that bad experience and, feeling so repressed in a marriage, all I wanted was to, you know, be myself again without somebody telling me who to be, what to wear, how to talk. So for me, being free was the big, the biggest, most wonderful thing that ever happened to me. So I really, really enjoyed it. And I have to say, the first four years after my divorce were some of the best of my life. I had a really wonderful time, met a lot of people, took up new hobbies. And then after four years, I started dating my husband, and we dated for seven years before we get we got married. Right. Do Do you feel like this experience, the horrible experience that you went through, did that kind of prepare you for actually your true love, if you will? Like, did do you appreciate the relationship you're in more? Do you feel like you appreciate it more if that never happened? Um, you know, the fact that it did happen. Do you feel like? you probably appreciate the relationship you're in now even more so? Oh, absolutely. I think when you have you have the ability to compare, you can see the big difference and, and be grateful for what you can create with another person. Right, absolutely. <clears throat> um, so talk about what you do now as far as, um, you know, advocating and, and what you do, with prof- you know, obviously you opened up your own law firm and all that. So, yeah, just talk about what you do. Yes. So I have been doing advocacy for domestic violence survivors since I was in law school. And that's how I learned more about the situation I was in. And I have since taken up every opportunity to be a a trainer. I do empowerment trainer. I have done the um, all state financial empowerment for domestic violence survivors. I am a speaker and I wrote my first book was solve the divorce dilemma. Do you keep your husband or do you post him on Craigslist? And I wrote a book to help people who were women. The first book was for women, women who were in unhappy marriages, create their lives, lives they love, whether they remain or end their relationship. And this book was written with domestic violence relationships in mind and in conjunction with 
a domestic violence expert who uh, reviewed the book and made sure it was suitable and helpful for victims. So I have been um, sharing sharing this knowledge, sharing my books, appearing on podcasts, and providing um, discussion groups for, for women. So I'm doing a lot of outreach with domestic violence organizations so that so that this knowledge and this support and this empowerment can be offered to women who who are now where I was a long time ago. Right. So do you do you feel? I mean, kind of in the same sense of the last question I asked you. Do you feel like? Um, I mean, I guess you never want to go through that, but do you feel like, in a way, it was a good thing that that happened to you because now you can actually reach so many more people? And because I'm sure this is something you're very passionate about. Um. But yeah, I mean, I'm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like, in a way, it was kind of a good thing that it happened to you? I mean, you can say no. It's fine. Bad. No, no, I can say yes. I believe no. Bad things happen for good reason. And if I hadn't been through this experience, I wouldn't be where I am now. I, I wouldn't have acquired the knowledge and the strength and the resilience that I developed because I was in this situation. And that gives me the ability to help others to recognize when somebody else is hurting and I know what they need to change their situation, which is something I wish somebody had helped me with. Right, absolutely. So it's it's been it's it's been it's been a blessing, and I I hope I can help I, I men and women who are unhappy, who find themselves trapped, who may not even realize that they are in an abusive situation. So I think it's a golden opportunity to to turn this adversity into something of value. Is there? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's obvious signs, but for a girl out there or a guy, but you know, mainly girls, that a woman who's going through this. Is there any some like kind of whether subliminal or certain signs that maybe certain people wouldn't catch? Because um, obviously, if you're physically abusing or you know you're saying you know you're ugly or whatever, that's obvious. But are there some signs that some people could you know catch on to uh, that maybe they they're really not? It's not as obvious as you know, like I said, being physical or whatever. Right there, you know, the, like you're spot on. Physical abuse is very easy to, it's very clear cut. If you're hurting your, your partner physically, it's definitely domestic abuse. But you need to be very careful of the different signs. And there's different kinds of abuse. There is uh, financial abuse where they try to control the money, your access to education, your access to job opportunities, or showing up at your job and creating a scene so that you lose your job. Um, so that's one way. Um, other ways, if, if your partner is um, abuses you sexually and tries to coerce you into engaging into act, sexual acts that you're not comfortable in doing and does not respect those boundaries. Right. And right now with technology, there's all kinds of abuse uh, where, where you can mess with somebody's mind by controlling the heaters and the lights when the person is alone at home. So there's very many different ways, but in terms of psychological abuse, um, there's what's called gaslighting, where they're trying, they try to make you think you're crazy and say things um, and do things that make you question your sanity. Like, for instance, um, you know, I never said that. We never had that discussion or, you know, just challenge, challenge your reality, challenge something that happened. And again, the usual, the name calling, the put downs 
trying to isolate you from friends and family. And that could be something as simple as starting a fight before you go out with your friends. So you're you're in a bad mood and a bad in a bad frame of mind when you are with with people on a social in a social setting. So anything that makes you it's anything that is designed to make you feel bad about yourself. Anything that is systematic, because there is a difference between your spouse or your partner being a jerk, and that's where I find myself, is this just being a garden garden variety jerk. And when you see that something that is systematic, that's chipping away at your self-esteem, that's when you are in an abusive situation. Because we can all have a bad day. We can all say, we all say things we don't mean. But when it's systematic and when it's designed to to reduce yourself esteem and sense of worth, that's when you're most likely uh, in in an abusive situation. And for anyone who has any doubts, I recommend going to the National Domestic Violence Hotline to get more information. All right, awesome. I'll find the number. I'll put it in the description. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think when people hear the word abuse, like, you know, they don't think of I mean, obviously, unless you put sexual abuse in front of it or whatever, but a lot of people hear it and they think of only specific things. And it's like there's words like that, like, you know, like PTSD, for instance, like people associate that with, you know, people in the war. But there's many forms of PTSD, just like there's many forms of abuse. Um, And it's it's good that, like you said, you give those type of signs, because like I said, there's some obvious ones. And then there's some that are probably there in front of you, but you're not considering like like I like the one that you said about. Uh, the financial one, because yes, I'm that, that is, it's probably not as obvious, but it's controlling and it's taking away your, I guess your rights and, and just, you know, dehumanizing you in a way that's not as obvious as saying you're ugly or you're, you know, you don't have any self-worth or hitting you. Um, right. So do you have any, and I always like, you know, depending on the topic and, and so on, but do you have any like messages or a message for a woman or a girl, whoever is, is going through it right now. They're in the middle of, you know, whatever they have a black eye or they're whatever their self-esteem is low. Um, what is like, do you have a message for them on how to overcome whatever it is, their guilt, their sadness, their uh, insecurities, whatever it is to how to, you know, overcome this and just get out of this situation. If somebody is in danger, if your partner is violent, get help immediately and reach out to, I I recommend the National Domestic Violence Hotline and they have resources that can refer you to local resources as well. Get help immediately because these dangerous situations are likely to escalate and you want to be safe. And bear in mind that when you try to end a violent relationship, that's the most dangerous time. That's when the abuser becomes desperate and does things that are irrational and become more violent. So get help. And for anyone else who doesn't is, is not sure, am I or am I not in an abusive relationship, still get help. Reach out to a, a domestic violence advocacy group and try to learn more about the situation and and understand, you know, how does that fit into your relationship patterns. And the most important thing, empower yourself first. Do things that fortify your your sense of self and do not alienate yourself from your friends and family. Reach out. And if the people in your life don't understand what you're going through, 
and don't support you, find other sources of support. You can't do this alone. You really need help. You need someone to validate you and strengthen you as you make an exit. And make it gracious and make it a happy one. Make it something you look forward to. Right. Do you, do you think, at least, I mean, usually this is the case, but do you, do you feel like surrounding yourself with women who also have been abused helps you to feel less alone? And to be able yes, to deal with the could, situation? As long as you stay away from people who have a victim mentality. Right, right, right. Absolutely. I don't believe in victims. We're all survivors, not victims. Right, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I think I think kind of the piggyback off what you were saying a minute ago is that I think you know I mean you're the expert in this, but you know I think a lot of women get in these relationships and maybe like in your case, you know, there's a lot of verbal abuse and a lot of them, even though that's happening, they still are kind of naive to the fact like, well, he wouldn't hit me. It's like, yeah, because you haven't tested his manhood or you haven't done something enough to trigger that, but he will. You know, well, then he hits you, and it's like, well, he wouldn't force himself on me or he wouldn't kill me. It's like. You're just kind of tempting fate here because it, it, I mean, again, it also depends on the person, but if it, if he's willing to punch you in the face, he's probably willing likely to do something even more extreme. Um, and even, yes, yeah. that's right. And, and, and don't go by the fact that, you know, he's not hitting me because psychological abuse is very, very destructive. It can be even more destructive because no one's going to give you a hand. You may not even know about it. So you're not going to get the help that you need to get out, or you may not think it necessary to end the relationship, but ultimately it destroys your soul. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, you just, yeah, and again, just, just because they haven't done it, and, and even if they don't do it, you can't predict those things. You just got to avoid it. You just got to take care of you. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, honestly, I thank you for doing this. It was, uh, like I said, you're very, you're, you're very important to that cause, um, it's not something I've experienced. Um, I know people have gone through it, but um, like I said, you're you're doing some really good work, and like I said, you definitely are. You definitely matter in your cause because I'm sure a lot of people, again, you know, you said one in four women, and you know it, that number probably doesn't even resonate until you say like you know last year once you pull up real statistics and say this this is how many women died from this and this is how many women are suffering now and but one in four that's a huge number um and you know and there might be some that we don't even know about maybe the numbers are higher who knows but it's definitely not lower because there's a lot of people suffering from all kinds of abuse and um but yeah like i said i thank you you're definitely you know you have a beautiful soul and you're really doing some good work well, thank you, and thank you for giving me a chance to bring to your audience this very important subject. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, 